Hey everybody, this is Rob Liefeld. You are listening to another episode of Rob Observations. Welcome uh, to Rob Observations where we discuss comic books, pop culture, how they're really one and the same nowadays. Uh, my love of comics and pop, pop culture my entire life, whether it was watching Star Trek on the weekends every Saturday and Sunday at 5 and 6 back-to-back episodes with Captain Kirk and the crew or the Star Trek cartoon, the Super Friends cartoon, or Thunder the Barbarian in the early 80s. My love of X-Men, Avengers, Justice League, Teen Titans, and watching all these become global, gigantic, you know, worldwide phenomenons. Uh, that's what we do here. Um, today is a little bit of a somber day. It's hard to um, get, you know, terribly enthusiastic when when such terrible bad news is dropped in your lap. And... Um, as you are listening to this, we are uh, just all processing as a comic book industry the the news that we received from one of our all-time greats and maybe the most beloved uh, creator of my lifetime, and that is Mr. George Perez. George Perez, who uh, is mentioned on my very first episode because um, one of my earliest comic books that I ever encountered, Avengers 141, was drawn by George Perez, and it was his first issue of The Avengers, and it said they welcome George Perez to The Avengers family, and that is 1975, and so George Perez was my very first comic. Uh, Can't make this stuff up. This goes all the way back to my, like I said, my first podcast nearly two years ago, um, where uh, the, the the Avengers Squadron Supreme story plays out over the best better part of a year, and I discuss how it's the first time I encountered Echoes, that the Squadron Supreme was kind of an echo of the Justice League. That wasn't the first appearance of the Squadron Supreme, but it is by far my favorite Squadron Supreme appearance, and it is, my, my, I think, the, the, the largest cast that they had introduced to date, and you got Echoes of Hawkman, and the Atom and Black Canary and Green and Green Arrow. Um, they 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 they, uh, they they dug deeper. The Tom Thumb, Captain Hawk. Um, these guys were the Atom and the, and they were Hawkman because you'd already been introduced to Doctor Spectrum and Hyperion and Nighthawk and and so many uh, along the way and uh, just a sprawling, amazing year long story. And it just set me on my path uh, of of just loving and adoring everything Mr. George Perez put down on paper. He is one of the reasons uh, that, that that I love comic books. He is one of the chief reasons that I make comic books for my living. He inspired an entire generation of creators. Again, if you've listened to this show for any long extended period of time, I talk about myself and Todd McFarlane and the notorious uh, boys, Jim Lee, Eric Larson, Myself, Ron Lim, uh, I know Jim Valentino, a very dear friend of mine, uh, is very influenced by George. We were all influenced by George Perez. He was profound. He was uh, one of, if not the premier uh, talents of his age. He would compete with such uh, notable talents as John Byrne and Frank Miller and no one else. Those were the guys that he was throwing down with in his uh, peak years, his prime years, when he was, uh, you know, just building his popularity base. He's created 
the new Teen Titans. We're going to read a little about what a big giant leap that was because people, again, you got to go back in time. And I don't want you to take my words. I'm going to read from two great interviews with Mr. Perez today, one of my favorite interviews that he ever gave. Uh, to the lovely Heidi McDonald, who runs the Comics Beat. I love her. I've known Heidi since I first broke in. She did this interview with George in 1985, and it's great, and it's as resonant today as it was then, maybe even more so. Uh, the publisher of IDW, Chris Ryle, that's how I knew him for the better part of a decade. Chris got me to do the Snake Eyes G.I. Joe story uh, 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 miniseries last year, and uh, and I mean, always indebted to him for reaching out and making that happen and working with Hasbro. He did a, uh, IDW had some Marvel licenses where they were able to do these kind of uh, focus books, and he did a giant coffee table book celebrating George's work on the Avengers, but along with it is a great interview. I'm going to read from that today. You're going to get to hear so much from George himself, and that's what we're here to do today. We're here to celebrate the amazing uh, uh, longevity impact and 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 the legend that is Mr. George Perez. Again, the, from, from, from Starfire and Cyborg and Raven to um, the, the Monitor, the Anti-Monitor, all these amazing characters that George... Uh, built up uh, at, at, at DC Comics as part of his giant uh, resume of uh, this amazing body of work. To me, the Teen Titans is is one of many important bodies of work that we're going to discuss as we kind of go down this path. But let's let's start with the news that hit all of us earlier this week for immediate release from George's Facebook page. This broke. Uh, early on December 7th. To all my fans, friends, and extended family, it's rather hard to believe that it's been almost three years since I formally announced my retirement from producing comic books due to my failing vision and other infirmities brought on primarily by my diabetes. At the time, I was flattered and humbled by the number of tributes and testimonials given to me by fans and peers. The kind words spoken on those occasions were so heartwarming that I used to quip that the only thing missing from those events was me lying in a box. It was amusing at the time, or so I thought. Now, not so much. On November 29th, I received confirmation that after undergoing surgery for a blockage in my liver, I have stage 3 pancreatic cancer. It is surgically inoperable, and my estimated life expectancy is between 6 months to a year. I have been given the option of chemotherapy and or radiation therapy. But after weighing all the variables and assessing just how much of my remaining days would be eaten up by doctor visits, treatments, hospital stays, and dealing with the often stressful and frustrating bureaucracy of the medical system, I have opted to just let nature take its course, and I will enjoy whatever time I have left as fully as possible with my beautiful wife of over 40 years, my family, friends, and my fans. You guys, this hit the comics industry like a ton of bricks. Uh, you could sit here and argue with me, uh, and I, I sometimes argue with myself, who was the premier guy, artist, figure of, of this era that, that, that uh, inspired so many. But there is no argument who is the classiest, nicest, kindest, warmest uh, ambassador for comic books. Uh, and that, that is Mr. George Perez. Following uh, Stan Lee, I can't think of a kinder, more gentle man and I would even go so far as to say George is possibly kinder and more gentler than anyone who's ever repped the comic book business before today. I'm going to talk about my personal stories with George, how I met him, the time I spent with him, the important uh, 
<laughs> the important uh, relations that we had and uh, as friend, as fans, as peers and friends. And uh, while he is alive, I hope that this will be able to reach him and he can listen to me, Rob Liefeld, speak of my love of this man and how he 100% is the reason that I have been drawing comic books as my vocation for 35 years. Uh, as I said, George, when I got into the comic book field, was dominant. He was uh, not only drawing the Avengers, but soon enough I would encounter him drawing a favorite of mine called the Inhumans. Marvel had spun off a major uh, attempt at putting the, the Inhumans in their own showcase. And by the Inhumans, I mean Black Bolt, Gorgon, Karnak, Medusa, uh, Triton, Lockjaw. And George was right there along on the first issue. And I loved it. I, I picked it up in... Uh, 75, 76, I got like issues two, issue three, it was spotty. The distribution, you know, uh, none other than Jimmy J, who you guys have heard on the show, was describing to me the latest uh, kind of disarray that the direct market is in now that there are so many different distribution networks. And in short, everyone used to go to one source, which was Diamond for their Marvel, their DC, their Image Comics, boom. Now, DC has a, has a distributor called Lunar that's been... This has been going on for the better part of two years. Marvel has um, signed with Penguin, which we all know that Penguin is a powerhouse in the publishing, uh, the, the book publishing business, and they have now become the primary carrier and distributor of Marvel Comics. Uh, you can get your Marvel Comics from Penguin, or you can wait and get them through Diamond and pay a little more and maybe get them a couple weeks later. Lunar uh, is the only place you can get your DC Comics, and that has some spotty shipping and distribution. And, and then you pile it up with the uh, all of the stuff that's going on in our uh, country here in America, in the United States, uh, with, with the shipping and the freight and uh, all of the boats off the shore. You can go down to Huntington Beach at any time. You can go back down to Long Beach, Manhattan Beach. You are going to see all of those boats out in the ocean in, in a what has now become a much bigger harbor than we ever imagined. I mean, between the, the coasts of Huntington and Manhattan Beach and Long Beach, you know, between there and Catalina are, are all these giant freighters with your goods and merchandise sitting on them. A book that I did, Snake Eyes Dead Game, Snake Eyes Dead Game was printed in China and was delayed a good two months by sitting on one of those boats. So right now, Jimmy J told me, I feel like as a retailer, this is Jimmy's own words, just, just yesterday, uh, the day before this recording and the day of the, the, the news of, of George's terrible cancer diagnosis, Jimmy said, yeah, with all these different distributors, I'm getting books. I, I feel like I'm getting gaps. It, it, it kind of feels like, like it was in the newsstand days that you talk about all the time. And there it is, the newsstand days. And in the newsstand days, you wouldn't get every Avengers um, and you certainly wouldn't get it from the same location. Your liquor mart and, and longtime listeners know that the liquor store on Magnolia and Broadway in Anaheim was my premier haunt uh, where I got so much of George Perez's work and John Byrne's work and Neil Adams' work and Superman versus Muhammad Ali and the best of the Treasury editions and the the debut of Star-Lord drawn by John Byrne and Terry Austin and uh, which would jumpstart them on their career on their way to X-Men. But George Perez's uh, Avengers, that 141 that I'm speaking of with Squadron Supreme was at this mega awesome liquor store with the most stacked and racked 
thick. I mean, those, those, those each of those racks on the spinner rack were just overflowing because they, they just didn't want to pull them and send them back. So they just kept stuffing them. So condition was not your friend. You would get these books folded and bent from other people looking at them and putting, putting them back. But this is where I encountered George Perez on the Avengers, on the Inhumans, on the Fantastic Four. And again, I'd get Inhumans issue two, issue four. Um, it was a bi-monthly book. Uh, so, so it didn't come out monthly like the Avengers and the Fantastic Four, but I wouldn't even get consecutive Fantastic Four issues. There was this great Frightful Four two-parter where they were auditioning members of the Frightful Four after having captured the Fantastic Four. And I got the first part and I couldn't find the second part forever, both of which were drawn by George Perez. George lit it up at Marvel starting in 1975. But I'm going to take you back in George's words and talk to you about when he was starting out and how he came about to be on on these comic books in, at Marvel in 1975. And it is in this wonderful interview that he did with Heidi McDonald. And she is, you know, she gets right down to it. And she talks to him about his earliest days. And uh, she says, okay, so you decided you wanted to be a comic book artist. And uh, he said earlier, um, she asked George, what element was enticed you to go into comics he says oh it was not only the excitement but the first feeling of you know of 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 getting criticism and 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 both negative and positive by people who knew what they were talking about this is the 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 first question is about him showing his samples and he had um he he was shopping his work around at a star trek convention when you're the only artist in a school of non-artists you're the star of the show by getting actual criticism, in some cases rather raw, raking criticism. It's both eye-opening and traumatic. It made me feel a little upset because I had never been criticized like that before, but due to the fact that some of those same people offered that I should keep working at it, and they gave me a bit of encouragement. Plus one person who published, who was publishing a fanzine wanted to actually use my work, and I'm like, oh, wow. And Heidi says, right, right. He said, that's a really exciting element. I was, I was working with enough professionals for one thing to see how they normally interacted with fans but I liked the idea of my name in print and people knowing who the hell I was I figured if I knew people who did the books because they were reading the credits and they were like celebrities to me well boy I'd sure love to see my name in print just like that someday Heidi says sure it's a uh, it's a field where you get interaction and now of course you're a superstar comma George Perez he goes I try not to think of it like that she says sure sure and he says, it's too much responsibility. She says, okay, well, so you decided you were going to be a comic book artist. How did you break in? So George says, well, I started doing minimal fanzine work due to my high school commitments, but I didn't have as much time to do fanzine, fanzine work. So I kept practicing and drawing. My first fanzine work was for a totally obscure fanzine called Factors Unknown. They printed 250 copies of the book. It was published by a couple of guys named James Landon and Patrick O'Neill who now work for Comics Journal and Amazing Heroes. Two of the, um, those are two comic book uh, uh, fan magazines that were being printed at the time. I got in with a guy whom I'd met in high school, a guy named Tom Skioa, and I did work with my high school yearbook, my high school paper, and when they were doing the junior bulletin thing, I just got, I had just gotten out of high school, I believe in 1973. I went and applied to the junior bullpen. I didn't get accepted, but I met Sal Cortosio. And many people in the business back then were calling him Sal Q. He even went on to publish a bunch of portfolios, the Sal Q port- portfolio line. I, I have several of them myself. Uh, Sal Cortosio 
Quartuccio was doing strictly fanzine work at the time and introduced me to Rich Buckler. Rich Buckler saw my work and after a dry spell of trying to get, get to get into the business, I had met Neil Adams and I had met Dick Giordano and I had gotten the thanks but no thanks kid for a while. Rich Buckler called me up at my job. I was working at a bank. Or maybe I called him. I can't remember exactly the details, George says. But he needed an assistant and I ended up getting in through the back door by becoming one of Rich Buckler's many assistants. Rich Buckler, by the way, was drawing Avengers at this time. He was drawing Fantastic Four at this time. He was drawing Deathlock at this time. Rich Buckler was one of the most uh, in-demand artists working at Marvel in the mid-1970s. His book, he predated George on Fantastic Four. He did some great, great, some amazing comics. Um, I just adore Rich Buckler. He would later go on to um, do All-Star Squadron, many DC Comics Presents, Superman vs. Shazam. He was, um, uh, Rich passed a, a few years ago, um, but Rich was definitely a guy who could use an assistant at the time. Just telling you, because I was there and Rich's name was on everything. Uh, so I came in through the back door by becoming one of Rich Buckler's many assistants during this prolific period. And less than a year later, after being fired from the bank and working with Rich, I got my first professional assignment. Within a week, um, I had been fired from the bank. So I had been employed for a grand total of one week in my entire life. In my entire life. Heidi McDonald says, so it all just fell into place? Yes. Then I got my first assignment. I was given the Sons of the Tiger because everyone hated the strip. No one wanted to draw it. You know, let's give it to George. I talk extensively about the, the Sons of the Tiger. They were part of the martial arts movement. It's in an episode of my podcast called Everyone Was Kung Fu Fighting, and it came out to explain the origin of Shang-Chi, Iron Fist, the explosion, uh, Sons of the Tiger, White Tiger. This was all exploding from Marvel at the time. So George got the Sons of the Tiger strip, and uh, he just said, you know, no one wanted it, so, you know, let's give it to George. And Heidi McDonald says, yeah, let's George, let George do it. George says, yeah, he's hungry for anything. And the same time, at the, at the same time, Man Wolf came up. It was because George Tuska, another very accomplished artist at Marvel at the time, uh, was busy doing the Black Planet of the Apes black and white movie adaptation, and no one wanted to do Man Wolf. The Man Wolf, these are George's words, by the way, direct words. The Man Wolf was a schlock character. So I ended up getting my first feature book, my first color feature, and neither one of them were going to set the world on fire. Granted, at least the Sons of the Tiger, a very hated comic strip. I don't know why he's really saying this. As a kid, I dug it became the lead feature in Deadly Hands of Kung Fu, even over Shang-Chi. And Man-Wolf sales improved. Granted, the horror comics sales were on the decline, so when you say it improved, you mean to say it went from worse to bad, but at least it showed that I had excitement of just getting in, and it showed uh, in the work that I was able to do. I was also working with two people doing the writing, Dave Kraft and Bill Mantlo, and we were all starting at the same time. We had the freshness of youth, the enthusiasm of doing something, and characters that no one cared about. We were able to do anything that we wanted. Heidi McDonald says, well, the first book you really made an impact on was The Avengers. So this is this. You guys, my very first podcast is about Avengers 141. George Perez's first mainstream superhero title is Avengers 141. He discusses it right here. He says to Heidi, yes, as it turned out, while I was still on the Man-Wolf and, Sands of and Sons of Tiger, I really wanted to do the Avengers. At the time, writer Steve Englehart was looking for a new artist. Again, I had no reputation for me to fall on, but it was just what I wanted to do. And at this point, Steve Englehart, I guess, figured that the young person who was really interested in doing the book, because the Avengers is not a book that anyone really wanted to draw, because it was so much work, 
a lot of characters. I volunteered for that. Because of that fact that I had worked for Rich Buckler and he had been having deadline troubles, I received a call asking me to do a Fantastic Four story, which was supposed to be an annual instead of being two regular issues of the book. And around the same time, Bill Mantlo called and said he wanted me to do a series for the Inhumans, which would have been due a month ago. This is during the time when I was a young kid who could whip out those pages like nobody. So Man-Wolf got canceled, and I ended up having the Sons of Tiger, the Inhumans, the Avengers, and the Fantastic Four all handed to me at the very same time. I was doing three and a half books a month. The Inhumans was a bi-monthly series, so all of a sudden, everyone got to see my name. Unfortunately, as with anyone working that fast and that young, I still had so much to learn, so that the work was the best I could do under the circumstances. But if I had like just one book to do, maybe I could have done better. But I think by having to do all that work, I had to learn a lot quicker. So George um, just goes on to talk about how he wraps up the Sons of Tiger and, and, and continues on with the Avengers, and we will pivot back to that. But interestingly enough, he gives a little more detail in this giant oversized coffee table book in this interview with Chris Ryle that is just great. Chris asked some great questions. Uh, let me find this and then get back a little closer to proximity to the mic here. Because he go he now this so that interview is from 1985. This is from 2015. Okay, so we're jumping 30 years here in between these interviews. Chris says Chris Ryle asks George Perez. He says because uh, again this is a book celebrating George's work on the Avengers. Excuse me, this book is massive. It's knocking into my computer on my table. Um, he says. Uh, uh, let's talk about Avengers 141, your first issue of the Avengers. And George Perez says, oh, yes, yes. He says, did that one predate your other very early Marvel work like Sons of the Tiger, White Tiger, um, and Logan's Run? And he says, oh, yes, definitely. Well, Logan's Run, but White Tiger and Man-Wolf were both my first regular projects and definitely preceded the Avengers. But I didn't get the Logan's Run until after I had done the Avengers. I don't think they would have trusted me on Logan's Run at that point. In fact, the first issue of the Avengers that I got, well, hopefully I would have gotten the Avengers either way. But it happened out of sheer fluke because I believe George Tuska, who had been the regular artist on the series, was going on vacation. And at that point, he just couldn't do the issues. So I came in, initially, I was just going to be the filling artist. But because of the nature of the industry at that time, um, you got the same rate for drawing a team book as you did for a single character book. And single character books were a whole lot easier to draw. And there were no royalties involved. Very, very few people really wanted to do the Avengers at that time. And George Tuska, I think it was just a job for him. And he was just as happy to not come back to it at all. So when I went in to do that particular story, I believe Steve Englehart and several other people working at Marvel at the same time said, George Perez wants to do Avengers. Let's give it to him. He's obviously so enthused about it. And what I lacked in actual drawing ability, I made up for in desire. And you know, at that point, I was also quite fast. When I was doing the Avengers, I had also gotten the Inhumans as well as I was doing the Fantastic Four. And I was finishing up on the bi-monthly Sons of Ta Tiger. I was doing three and a half team books at that time for a man who could barely do one page a week. This was an incredible feat. And it says George laughed. Chris Ryle says, that sounds like a path to insanity. George Perez says, well, I faked it a lot. In those days, my finesse wasn't there. It would take a while before my talent matched 
my passion. So this is the George Perez that not only I encountered, but my friends in the art community and in the professional community, this is the George Perez that Todd McFarlane encountered and Jim Lee encountered because those guys are older than I am. If at 1975, okay, here's the deal. I'm seven, okay? I'm seven years old. I'm grabbing those comics. I remember the enjoyment. I would sit and read the comics in the front yard of the house that we had in Broadway, uh, off Broadway in Anaheim. And I'm telling you, I could not wait month to month. Uh, the Avengers wouldn't miss an issue for me until like issue 144. I got the first three chapters of of this uh, this Squadron Supreme saga, which also dovetailed into a Kang the Conqueror uh, story that George was drawing that was part of this uh, very interwoven storyline where Thor and Hawkeye had gone back to the Wild Wild West to team up with all the Marvel Western heroes, Two-Gun Kid, Rawhide Kid, Kid Colt. Um, George drew all of this. It was all part of the same storyline. I wouldn't start missing issues until uh, later in that issue, but that was when the gaps came in. And even my, my one of the guys who helped fill in my issues was my barber, who I've talked before, Fred, who traded me an early issue of uh, of, of Fantastic Four 147, which was drawn by Rich Buckler, which I got around the time I was getting this Avengers 141. He uh, he had issues. He had issues I missed. I would I was able to fill in my gaps with the stack of comics for my barber because he was buying comics all the time, and then he'd let me trade for him. But uh, George Perez was indeed on all those comics simultaneously. How exciting. And look, it, it's it's like there's a, there's a line from, from Young Guns 2, which I love. I actually like Young Guns 2 even more than Young Guns. Young Guns uh, ignited across the screen in the late 80s. Emilio Estevez, Charlie Sheen, Kiefer Sutherland. Uh, both both uh, both movies are very exciting, telling the story of Billy, Billy the Kid and the outlaws that he ran with. But in the second one, he talks about the guys in his posse who are turning on him. And he says, everybody wants to be a known man. They want to get their name in the paper. Well, you see George right here is talking about how he, he got so excited to see people's names, the people who he loved. Uh, he wanted to be like them and have his name in a comic book. And well, George got his wish. And not only did he get his wish, he electrified fandom. Avengers, for five years, he would be in and out of that title, but it would be in such important stretches that he became synonymous um, I read uh, Avengers uh, editor Tom Brevoort said he was basically the Avengers um, artist in residence. And I agree with that. The guy who was doing a lot of the books when he wasn't was John Byrne. The two biggest stars at Marvel during the Bronze Age were sharing art duties on a book that, again, if you uh, are a regular listener to this podcast, uh, a few episodes ago, I did one called The Numbers. And I read to you the um, actual rankings of the 70s, the 80s. It really canvassed the entire Bronze Age of comics. It goes from 1973 to 1984. Well, you can see in 1978, 1973, Fantastic Four is in the top four. Marvel 2-1 featuring The Thing is in the top four. Avengers is the top six, top seven comic book. Well, George is drawing all those books. George didn't do Spider-Man. Uh, he didn't do Marvel Team Up. He didn't do Peter Parker. He had none of the Spider-Man spinoffs. And I'm so grateful for it because he had such uh, a, he had such a passion. He speaks of it right there. His, his ability would catch up with his passion. But let me tell you something. His passion was carrying him. He was uh, and remains uh, uh, an amazing storyteller and page designer. And you can see that on display as early 
as Avengers 141 and Avengers, uh, you know, 145 and Avengers 150, George was absolutely on fire. He was uh, just uh, uh, using all different sorts of uh, stylistic uh, page design elements, long, thin panels, breaking up panels to convey motion rather than gesture convey motion. He would stagger the panels. He took every trick in the book. He talks in these interviews how he would be in, uh, influenced by Barry Windsor Smith, how he would be influenced by Jim Steranko, Neil Adams. He was Kurt Swan, Jack Kirby. Those are names that he specifically drops in all of his in, in all of his interviews. But the reason I wanted to read to you that that opening is, you know, George cut his teeth. He's, he was an assistant doing backgrounds, doing background figures. Um, the true assistant work that I've done in my time when I was first breaking in and I was waiting for my own work, a gentleman by the name of Brian Murray, some of you will know Brian. I hired him to do Supreme and launch Supreme after I introduced him in Youngblood. Uh, Brian Murray, I had actually known as a guy who broke into the comic book field. He had spent some time in New York in the continuity studios um, under Neil Adams. But when I met him, uh, he was attending Fullerton College, taking life drawing cl classes along with myself. Uh, Jim Valentino was a friend of his that he introduced me to. I was such a fan of Jim Valentino's. We, Jim and I bonded immediately over our passion and love of George Perez. Brian was all about Neil Adams and Neil Adams only. But uh, Brian had gotten an assignment from DC Comics called the Young All Stars, and I'd have to go. I would have to go grab the issue. But there's an issue because uh, Brian had seen my samples and he had seen it, how influenced by George Perez I was. I was definitely trying to be a George Perez style artist. Um, multiple panels on a page, ten panels, eleven panels. I just thought I'm going to stylistically completely trip out. And, uh, and and try and emulate everything that George Perez does, everything that I see about his work and I want to um, emulate into my own. And uh, so Brian knew what a big Perez guy I was and he knew that I loved doing lots of little figures. And one of the things that I always loved about George, he would take his angles up very high. He was fearless in his camera movement. He would go low, 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 uh, warm, warm shot, okay? You know, uh, like, I mean really low ground level up shots and you would do really high 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 level um uh he would do really high level uh you know down shots bird's eye views um and uh and and the the, the thing was Brian had a bunch of um Brian had a bunch of crowd sequences with some of his young all-stars battling Nazis and he's like, you're into that Perez stuff. Here, draw all these figures for me. Because he had other stuff to do. He was trying to ink a really nice face or ink, ink, ink um, um, uh, you know, ink, ink a big figure that was important to him. Um, but uh, the, uh, the, the, uh, the thing is, I, I jumped at it. Sure, more than anything, I, I wasn't getting, I was getting, it wasn't a credited, you know, assistant job. Just like I don't think George's assistant work with Rich Buckler was this what was was credited but i went at it and for those three panels that down shot with those nazis and the young all-stars throwing down with nazis he gave me the nazi uniforms man i just went to it i went at it and uh so again george cut his teeth he 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 he, he hung around he got one gig after another they weren't glamorous man wolf turned to sons of tiger turned into fantastic four turned to the into the avengers george was also doing a very important stretch of the fantastic four simultaneously to 
as he was doing the Avengers. So you guys, again, go to the numbers, go to the charts. The most popular books coming out of Marvel that didn't feature Spider-Man were Fantastic Four related or Avengers related. And George is doing them both simultaneously. And there is a uh, storyline where the Hulk battles the Fantastic Four in St. Louis. And one of the covers is them all fighting on the uh, Ark of St. Louis. But it ends with this rad splash page, the first part of the story, where uh, where the Thing and the Hulk are crouched next to each other about to take on the Fantastic Four. And it was like, wow! Like, holy shnikes! It was so ridiculously um, impressive. Uh, and, and that was George Perez, man. This guy is just hitting me every single you know, month in, month out, he is he is showing up and and exciting me no matter what the comic book that he was doing. And they happen to be Marvel's most, you know, popular, most appealing, most uh, successful comic books. And, and it was just, he was just on an absolute tear. And these are all in the same, you know, same realm, same year. Um, and, and, and it was... Uh, First time I remember uh, uh, early on, he did a he brought back a character that you all know as Quasar, but they called him the Crusader, and he used to be an old '50s character named Marvel Boy. And they did a two-parter where um, the Fantastic Four took on this guy Marvel Boy, but he was called the Crusader, and he he had this cool you know red and blue costume, and he had some headgear, headband, and I dug it. and And that is that that is the first time I remember seeing George draw. The Fantastic Four, I think this is when he was saying that he was supposed to be drawing an annual and it turned out that they turned, cut it up and split it into two issues because that totally makes sense because then after that two-parter with the Crusader uh, who had all these great nega bands, N-E-G-A, do not think I am saying a word other than N-E-G-A, which is how it is described. Um, uh, it, it, at, you know, it was a different time and place. Um Marvel Boy, uh, here I'm, I'm even, um, uh, you know, um, th- there they are, Marvel Database, N-E-G-A-Bands, the millennia-old Nega bands were powerful relics of the Kree Empire. Sometimes you say this stuff out loud and you immediately got to go source it and because uh, last thing I need is the grief. But following that two-parter with the Crusader is this Hulk issue. Fantastic Four 166, Fantastic Four 167. And and George is off to the races. Next thing you know, Power Man's in the comic. He's joining. I mean, uh, he's joining the Fantastic Four while the thing takes some time off. And and this is me reading, consuming these comics in the front yard of my house in Anaheim under a tree, eating a sandwich, drinking a Coke, okay? Um, this is my youth. And so you, you got to understand, Jim Lee is four years older than me, Todd six, seven years older than me, Jim Valentino, a decade or more old. We were all somewhere, somewhere uh, in our location, absorbing, just like you, George Perez. Dave Mandel uh, is the writer-producer of uh, Veep. He did um, Seinfeld at its peak. He uh, produced and and, and wrote uh, with Larry David some of the best episodes of Curb Your Enthusiasm. He is doing... uh, a series for HBO right now called The White House Plumbers. He is one of the funniest, most successful comedic producers and writers in our business. 
He is a gigantic, ginormous George Perez fan. We have poured over each other's George Perez collection before we almost pulled off a epic trade late 90s, early 2000s. But Dave, um, you know, can sit and regale you with how much he loved uh, George Perez and how much it touched him. And we're roughly, he's a little older than I am. There's a, a gentleman, an actor named John Mancuda. I love you, John. If you hear this, this is your shout out. Um, John has. I went over to John's house in the early 2000s and he showed me all of these Avengers covers that he owned, the originals. You know, uh, Avengers 162, 163, 167, one, oh my gosh, 168. I'm just like 170. I was just absolutely, completely blown away by his own passion. And he used to own so much more because, again, they were so affordable back then, especially in comparison to today's prices. But you're talking about people from all spectrums who were inspired by the work of this hardest working man in comic books. And again, the mirror, and I believe they pushed each other. And it's my fifth, fourth or fifth episode of this show. And it's called The Rivalry That Shaped an Era. And it is absolutely about John Byrne and George Perez and how they were always looking over each other's shoulders and so George Perez is my favorite artist of all space and time and in 1980 it's advertised that he's going to draw the Teen Titans for uh, DC Comics he's no longer going to be drawing Marvel but at the time that I see this he's he's doing like issue 199 198 issue 200 uh, of the Avengers my favorite comic you know, it's got King the Conqueror, it's got Immortus, it's got Ultron, it's got, you know, Red Ronin. He introduced Taskmaster. These are just this, this amazing, incredible, entertaining time for George on, on these books. And I am flipping out that I am now seeing him, but I was quite the Teen Titans fan. To be honest, it was like, ooh, I'm going I'm to be, be buying these. But, but you got to understand, from George's uh, perspective... I want you to read in George's own, you know, own words, um, you know, uh, in, in regards to uh, what what he was going, uh, what, he, what, what, he, what he was talking about in regards to doing the Titans. So I'm going to read to you, you know, um, DC had approached him while he was doing Avengers 200. And uh, they, they had mentioned the idea to George. I'm, I'm now reading George talking to Heidi McDonald. This is page 15 of Focus. On George Perez. He says, uh, people from Marvel, people from DC came to visit me and asked if I'd be interested in doing work for DC. Um, he Marv Wolfman specifically mentioned the Teen Titans, which I thought was a ludicrous idea. George Perez's words. I thought was a ludicrous idea. I said, I really wanted to do the Justice League. If he guaranteed me at least just one issue of the Justice League, fine, I'll do the Teen Titans. What do I care? I figured the book would be canceled in five issues anyway. George Perez's own words. I believe the book would be canceled in five issues anyway. Okay. That book would go on to become the signature work of George's life, of George's entire career. It, it begins, it ends uh, his entire, uh, by crossing the street. I'm going to tell you as a DC reader. Marvel had the superstars. Marvel had Jim Starlin. Marvel had Howard Chaikin. Marvel had John Byrne. Marvel had Frank Miller. Walt Simonson was coming on. Marvel had John Buscema. Marvel had Jack Kirby at this time. Uh, the artists at DC, the Irv Novics, the Dick Dillons, they were certainly 
um, very fine illustrators, but they didn't excite me. Not like George. And when a guy who's been doing Fantastic Four, Marvel 2-in-1, an X-Men annual that everyone is still talking about to this day, uh, the Inhumans, Avengers, Fantastic Four, Marvel 2-in-1, X-Men, uh, uh, again, I'm just kind of make, making sure I get them all in there. When this guy, who is so synonymous with flagship Marvel books, is now going to be going over and draw, drawing DC, we all stood up and took notice, and George instantly became the most important person at DC when he crossed the street. I've always believed that George saw what was going on. He saw some of the favor that was being... Uh, accum- John Byrne really, really had... Um, the attention, maybe the favor of all of Marvel editorial. And I think George was like, I'm working my ass off. Why am I not getting the same love? But the X-Men was lightning in a bottle and had become the hottest thing in comics. And I think George, who I know, and I'm going to talk to you about my personal interactions with him. George, uh, very, very, very aware. Very aware. Um, you can see just how aware he is in the way that he talks in these interviews. And he becomes even more aware in these interviews as time goes by. He talks very much about who um, who was, uh, he talks about who was, you know, who was inking him, who, who he wanted to work with, which characters, what other books are doing well. He's asked later on in here to give comments about people. And he, he, he has slight, sly ways of, of talking. There are people he talks about that he's very excited about. And there's a couple of people that he gets his jabs in on because this was the fun of comics. John Byrne, I famously read from a John Byrne uh, comics journal interview where he goes after George himself. Says, takes a, he, there's a photo. Someone took a photo of John Byrne because he asked them to. Of, 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 he said, this is a George Perez character talking. And he had this wild hand gesture and kicked his head all the way back and his mouth is completely open like he's raging. And he was talking about how George's characters yell at each other and they don't just talk. And, and it's not as complimentary as it should be given that George was looking John eye to eye during their rivalry. But John viewed himself clearly in this interview and in, in the art of John Byrne, John's art book, the kind of counter to this uh Focus on George Perez. John says, I John says, I'm the most popular guy in comics. I mean, John is like, he's 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 wearing it. And it's no different than basketball, you know, where you know Kevin Durant is vying to be the best against LeBron James, against Steph Curry. I mean, it it it's a competitive comic books are as competitive as you could possibly imagine. And I think you guys see it on convention floors, you see it in the in 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 the, in the work. Everyone pushes each other, and these two guys pushed each other. But George. Uh, the George Perez that I loved was now going to DC and he's going to do this Teen Titans and you you read it right here. He thinks it was ludicrous. Okay. I mean, literally he says, this is going to be ludicrous. I figured the book will be canceled in five issues anyway. Okay. Well, that goes on to catch all the fire in the world. And I do believe, um, it caught so much heat because John Byrne had just then quit the X-Men and gone on to the more adult Marvel titles with Fantastic Four and then later on launching Alpha Flight. But there was a suddenly a need for an exciting young group of superstars and this time coming from the DC Universe. And the designs and the characters, they just clicked, they just worked. Cyborg, Starfire, Raven, the new designs for Changeling, 
bringing in a revamped um, kind of feel for Robin. Uh, he was definitely more of a bold, dynamic leader in the in the in the mold of of what we like the best out of Cyclops. Wonder Girl, who was as powerful and confident as any female being written at the time or, or portrayed. And then, of course, Kid Flash, who was always so badass and about to fulfill his destiny as becoming the Flash because uh, it just felt like that ball was in motion from the minute you picked up the Teen Titans. The drama, um, the the backstories, the story of Vic Stone, Cyborg, this powerful black uh, uh, young superhero. It, it, it was a character that Marvel, that, that it was a character that DC desperately needed. Uh, he talks about designing... Uh, Starfire and 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 the notes that he was given and 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 make her hair longer and uh, how he was trying to make her look more cat like. I mean, George was just all in on giving it his very best shot and it paid off. People love the Teen Titans. Fans like me, we went crazy for it. Then came Ravager and Deathstroke and Brother Blood and the Hive and the and the Fearsome Four or the Fearsome Five. I mean, they just would not stop Mammoth. Um, I mean, and and then they brought back Doom Patrol. In issues, I think 13, 14, 15, and people like myself who would always long to see the see Doom Patrol, Robot Man, Elastigirl, kind of given a modern treatment. What, I mean, this was the single greatest Doom Patrol story ever because Changeling lived in both worlds. He was originally in Doom Patrol and was now part of the Titans full time, and so there was a natural tether to bring the Doom Patrol in, and it is an it is an amazing storyline. It is among Everyone that I talk to, again, a writer named Jim Kruger, who's written Earth X and so many other uh, foot soldiers and so many other favors of yours. He and I have talked at length how those Doom Patrol Titans issues. Um, we had we had lunch in Orange a couple of years back, and it was like, oh, those Doom Patrol Titans issues. I mean, the book had just momentum that would not stop for for years. Titans just kept building and building and became DC's number one selling book. Their premier. Um, attraction and and a billboard for everybody else. You don't think Frank Miller was looking at that billboard? You don't think John Byrne was looking at that billboard? George Perez inspired, I think, Frank Miller to leave Daredevil and go to Ronan and then Dark Knight. And he inspired John Byrne, who I believe said, wow, George's got the whole playground to himself. Now I can crash the pad and get some of that juice by revamping Superman. And there's an entire John Byrne revamp of Superman episode in my podcast from season one that you should check out. But George had to go there and show everybody that you could be hot and relevant and get the fans excited for everybody else to respond. So I meet George as a fan when I am 13 years old, okay, in the fall of, uh, of, of 1980 as the Titans are launching. George loved Southern California. That is why I got to know and meet and hang out with George Perez so often. He loved Southern California. He loved coming out here. He loved the weather. He loved the hotels. He loved the climate, the beaches, everything. So it was like every four months, once a season, George was booking an appearance. There was a store called the Land of Ooze and Oz. And I have talked to Robert Lugabill, who took over the um, Land of Ooze and Oz. When I met Robert, he was a clerk. He eventually bought the store from the previous owner. And this was in Fountain Valley. And for the longest time, Fount, uh, Land of Uzanaz was my favorite store because they had George Perez. They had Mike Zeck. They had um, John Beatty. They had all manner of talent. Alfredo Alcala um, signing at their store. They were the store in Orange County that was bringing comic book creators to us. 
Fountain Valley was a good 45-minute drive from my house. It was a two-hour bike ride. But I would either bum a ride for my folks or I would uh, make that bike ride with a sketchbook under my arm, with comic books bagged and bored in a special tight bag, you know, in my basket on my Land Cruiser. Um, but there was no way I was going to pass these appearances up. So when George appeared, I made it my place to be there in line. George would sit at these stores and he would talk your ear off and he would listen to all of the love and adoration that we would bring to him. He would do sketches. He had some pages to sell. He announced when I was at that first signing that he would be attending the 1981 uh, Creation Con at the Anaheim uh, Disneyland Hotel in Anaheim. And that ballroom, it was him, uh, uh, George Perez and Michael Golden were the comic book guests of note uh, at that show. And so it that was my very first comic convention that I attended in 1981. And George had a, a guy named Sal who had come along with him with piles of artwork. And I had been mowing lawns and doing everything I could to afford a single page of original art. And at this day and age, I bought a splash page of Darkseid with the um, three of the villains from the Injustice Gang from this three-part Justice League, the very first Justice League story that George did. He did the last two parts. Inked by Frank McLaughlin, I thought it was so striking and so epic. I don't know where along the way I ended up selling it, but it uh, is now in the possession of the publisher of Dynamic Forces, Nick Barucci, who shows it off. And I was talking to my attorney about the fact that I was the first person to own that page, and my attorney laughed because he owned it in between and sold it to Nick. What a small world. My entertainment attorney... Nick Barucci, publisher of Dynamic Forces. We are all united as George Perez crazy superfans. But in 1981, at 14 years of old of age, I bought my first George Perez piece of original art. I was so excited, even though it was villains. I was thrilled because I loved Darkseid, I thought. And with the cape and standing on the steps, this was just an amazing opportunity. Uh, George knew how he really, he stood up and helped me find a page in my price range just so you know i was sweating it do i get this starfire page do i get this cyborg page um the reason the justice league page was more affordable was because it was the villains it was dark side even though it was a splash page it was at a less cost because it was a villain and george was very helpful well what do you want what are you looking for specifically rob he was so personable he was so kind and he had a crowd and he was doing sketches in people's books and taking commissions overnight. And I made sure I was there the next day on Sunday to see what those commissions looked like. So year in and year out, I would go to wherever George was signing in Southern California uh, at whatever show that he would show up at. And he did lots of these um, Orange County shows. I would bump into him again in the 1983. Uh, I, uh, there was another Land of Uzanaz signing further into his Titans run. Then in 1983, at my very first or 1982, my very first San Diego Comic-Con that my dad took me down on the train because I couldn't drive yet. I was able to, again, hang out with him. And it was, um, we just kept building this rapport. And he knew how much I adored him and I how much I told him. He, I, I, he was my absolute favorite. And cut to 1984, when I basically helped man his booth, his table, in a, kind of an off nook that they had put him in on the floor in the original San Diego Convention Center. And uh, 
I helped people look through pages and would be the intermediary with George while he was sketching and signing people's books. All along the way, I would get so many books signed. This last 24-hour period, I've gone out to my garage. I have popped open my lid. I have grabbed my comics. Back in the day, you only got them to sign the Indicia. So I have almost every Titans signed by Marv Wolfman and George Perez on the interior of the comics. 1, 2, 3, 14, 16, 24. And, uh, and, and George was so friendly and so kind, and he did a drawing of Jericho, who was my personal favorite. Yes, Jericho was my favorite Titan at the time. When George introduced him, I thought he was so badass. I loved his powers that he could possess people. I loved how his eyes would turn black and yellow. George did this awesome, amazing sketch of Jericho in my book, but he didn't ink it. And he said, I want you to try inking this. Fairly tight on the tighter end, not super tight, but also better than breakdowns and layouts. And it would take me until I went to an art store and found vellum, as he suggested, because I didn't want to ink the actual sketch in the book. So I got that vellum. I've actually shown this on my Twitter account recently, where I uh, inked over the Jericho sketch that he did for me, full, you know, head to toe. Loved it. Amazing experience. My dream was I was hoping maybe I could ink George Perez. George gave me an unused page to an unused annual that they had started but scrapped. And it had uh, Cyborg and Terra on it and the Vigilante. And he gave me these, uh, it was a page of breakdowns, gave them to me and said, again, something else that you could ink. And you bet, you bet I went at that page and tried my darndest with rapidographs, markers, um, technical pens, trying to emulate the, the inking style. Inkers or something that George was hyper-focused on. He would talk to you about this. He would talk to you. Um, he, he, would, he, he, he would just, as a fan, sitting right there going, what do you think of this inker on me? I like this guy. I'm not, you know, he wasn't crazy about this guy. He wasn't crazy about this guy. He definitely loved Dick Giordano inking him. He thought Dick, of all the inkers at DC at that time, was inking him the best. And then John Beatty, who had done some work inking over him on Justice League before John, then segued and basically became... Uh, Mike Zek's go-to inker on Secret War, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, on Captain America prior to Secret Wars. But I'm going to um, read to you a little about what George had to say about his inkers. And it was as he was leaving Marvel Comics. And I'm going to tell you right now, he says, uh, he talks about this style that he was going for. And he says, there's always a question for us to get into down the line going from Vinnie Coletta, who was an inker, to Joe Sinnott, who inked him. Vinnie Coletta inked that Avengers 141. Joe Sinnott was inking his Fantastic Four work. He says, um, this is actually Chris Ryle asking him, um, uh, what a difference each inker made. I'm so curious, not to jump too far ahead here, but you know, with the early issues inked by Vinnie Coletta, Sam Granger, Jack Abel, I'm curious at what point you had the clout to request an inker instead of just being assigned an inker. And George says, well, that didn't really happen until I worked at DC. At that point, it was, who was available? And it wasn't until I developed enough of a name that an inker would want to ink me. Again, these were the pre-royalty days. And as I became more and more ornate, more detail-oriented, fewer and fewer established inkers wanted to work on me because there's a lot of work and they aren't getting paid enough to do that. I actually remember seeing little notes on pages saying, can you pull back on some of this detail or stop drawing these really small distance shots where everything's a lot smaller. It's such a pain in the ass to ink and it's very time consuming. There were some who took it as part of their job and made no such complaints. Joe Sinnott being one of them and Sam Granger being another. Joe usually had a background man. So it was the background man who would suffer a lot more than Joe. 
and several other inkers. Also, in the case of Joe Rubenstein, um, or Joe Sinnott, Joe was inking different casts. The Fantastic Four had a much smaller cast. The Avenger was a much larger cast. I don't know if Sam Granger, who had followed Vinnie Coletta, or guys like Mike Esposito, if they used background men very much, of course. But you knew it was more of a challenge. And giving Vince Coletta his due, because Vince Coletta has been written about so many times and maligned by so many people, including myself, but the fact that while other inkers like Sam Granger might have been inking one or two books, Vinnie was inking half a dozen comics. So to expect quality from someone who was being hired to just get the work done on a book by a newcomer who was putting in way more detail than was necessary. At that point, I had not mastered the difference between detail and clutter. The fact that my style or my enthusiasm was still able to shine through, I think kind of gives me a little extra credit there. But it wasn't until I became much more of a name and that name translated to sales and those sales translated to royalties that I would have the power to say, no, I would like this particular inker. And George weighs in on, you know, how uh, different inkers, how, how he viewed different inkers and, and, and some of his disappointments along the way of, of, of the guys who he was getting, who, who some he thought was delivering, of who you will definitely hear about, and some who he thought were kind of failing on their end to live up to the bargain that, that George believed he brokered with them. Again, as he's speaking of, you're now in the royalty era in the era where he's able to ink, to, to ink his, uh, to, to pick his inkers. Sales had ticked up. This wasn't 1975 anymore. This is the mid eighties. Royalties were now a standard policy. And I can, and you can, and I can tell you as someone who was able to thrive in this business through royalties, how important that was. But George is going to continue to expand as we go on which inkers he, he favored and those of whom he felt were not the best match for him. So I'm going to go ahead and, and stay with the Inker stuff to wrap that up with George and just his uh, his his ongoing, uh, uh, you, you know, view of all the different Inkers that had inked him over, uh, especially by the time that, that that I encountered him, at which I'm about to tell you my, my, my most kind of uh, intense time that I spent with him, which would be in 1986. I mean, George has been doing this 11 plus years, a lot of pages, thousands of pages under his belt. He's definitely, he's uh, ascended to the top uh, echelon of artists in the comic book industry, definitely the top at DC Comics at this time. And uh, he's talking about the end of his time at Marvel Comics right before he transitions to DC. And, and this is in the Avengers interview in the Avengers, uh, you know, uh, the, 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 the special IDW uh, coffee table uh, Avengers book that focuses on his on his work then and, and, and now. And he talks about that he he was coming back to Avengers after being away for a while. He goes, uh, every time that I would come back to the Avengers, I'd come back with a full penciled issue. In Avengers 194, that was my comeback issue. I'd been gone for a while. And then I came back. And of course, it was a fully penciled job. And I was inked for, unfortunately, the one and only time by Joe Rubenstein, who did a beautiful, beautiful ink job even added more finesse to what at that point I felt was one of my strongest pencil jobs. I was trying to improve in the greatest amount of improvement artistically of the issues that you see the full pencil jobs because then sometimes I feel like I'm falling backwards artistically when I have to go uh, just straight to layouts, which is a lighter version, you guys, of pencils, not, not as tight, not as refined, not as rendered, but then I couldn't do the finessing. I have to, you know, get the book out so the pages of issues that, that I feel are always the strongest are when I just was coming back and able to, able to do full pencils. 
Then it was George Perez, he says, enhanced by a good anchor. Issue Avengers issue 194 being a prime example of this. And that first issue that Pablos Marcos did way back, 1976, Avengers 160, those are great ones. I think they're stronger because the example of, again, you know, that first issue that 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 Pablo did, my penciling, was stronger. I was really, really happy with Joe Rubenstein's inking. I regretted that Joe could not, dot, 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 couldn't, wouldn't, he, he, he says, wouldn't, laughs, says laughs, stay on the book after that one shot, and then we followed up with at least a nice starting page with Dan Green staying, uh, you know, ink, inking, inking the follow-up, the splash page to the next issue, Avengers 195. And then there was the, the great... Jarvis, Jarvis was the Avengers butler about the bully. And the interviewer, Chris, says, oh, those crisp Gene Day inks. Oh, yeah, George says. I love Gene Day. I love Gene Day's work. I mean, look at it. It occurs to me that Gene Day's work is even a little thicker than I probably remember. But he inked everything and added so much. a meticulous inker. I loved his work. And even looking at that now, I think, okay, there are certain things that, well, we were both a little... Overindulging in our work, maybe I put one brick too many in the background or everything had almost an uh, equal value as far as the weight of the line, but God, it was ornate. It was beautiful. I loved it. And it was a very silly story. It was good to have gone through it for a nice change of pace. One of the rare stories where I got to draw people just in normal clothing. Uh, he says, uh, he says, you know, and then in, in issue 196, jumping down, he says, and then there were the issues inked by Jack Abel, which I mean, dot, 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 laughter. So his voice is trailing off. And Chris interviewing him said, I, I, you know, I just felt like other inkers finished your work so much nicer. George says, yes, it was a shame because obviously that this was the introduction of Taskmaster in Avengers issue 196. He says, but unfortunately, yeah, Jack, I mean, Jack had worked with me on Sons of the Tiger and I wasn't a developed artist then and I couldn't argue with him. But even though, as I look at it now, we aren't really a good match, we weren't a good match on the Avengers. Particularly, again, I was doing layouts, so Jack had to do more of the work, more of the heavy lifting. We weren't a good match. It didn't work well. My very last Avengers story before I would go to DC Comics. Unfortunately, it was one of the weakest. Again, there was an inker named Mike Esposito, Mike Esposito, who was then, well, he was my very first inker, but I outgrew him. I had outgrown him. It was a rush job at that end too. And again, it was me on layouts. Unfortunately, I think the Avengers at that point, um, we were having a weak turn there. And I didn't have the inkers that could take up the slack on the book with me just providing layouts to bring it up to the art levels of the previous issues. And uh, he talks about there are certain inkers you know, reliable guys who can hit deadlines, who can stay pretty true to the penciler's lines. He says, uh, Mike Esposito. Mike Esposito was a guy, and I've mentioned him at length in an episode of our podcast about Superman, Spider-Man, the first big, giant Marvel DC crossover book. Mike Esposito was inking a guy named Ross Andrew and was his dedicated inker. But for the crossover, the Superman, Spider-Man, they went with Dick Giordano, who was actually a much more uh, celebrated inker. And uh, Ross Andrew and Mike Esposito didn't like that because they were a, 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 a team. But Mike Esposito would come up. He was more brush heavy. He was a little thicker. And as you're going to hear George Perez say, he was cruder. He says Espos Esposito was obviously much more crude. 
and uh, and he says uh, he says once I started developing my George Perez style, the polish that I was endeavoring to have, um, you know, it was just too much of a job to so many of them, and uh, they inked the way they always inked, and it didn't matter who the pencil was; it was just get some figures inked and get it out. And uh, Jack Abel, he wasn't a good choice over me, and even uh, e even even some of the magnificent inkers who I who I think could ink me now. Because developmentally, I'm not the same artist I was 20 years ago. Even the great Sinnott, Joe Sinnott, I don't think our styles would mesh. And then wrapping up on this, Inkers in the 90s, when he came back, Chris Ryle says, did you bring Al Vey with you? George Perez, again, this is very honest here. George says, no, Al was, well, we were trying to decide who was going to ink me on the book. There were a few artists out there. But since Al had worked on some stuff at Malibu with me, I thought Al would be a good choice. One of the things which, and I must say, as we got further along in the book, and again, since I was you know, doing uh, more layouts. I just was not happy with Al's inking. And he was starting to go with a much more illustrator style that was different than what he had done before. He was evolving. And now we were starting to evolve apart from each other. And at that point, an issue of the Avengers also printed with a rough cut of my pencil so people could see what my pencil should look like. At that point, he did follow me as close as he could and added other stylistic tweaks. But after a while, he became dot, 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 for whatever reason, Al seemed to refuse to draw characters steadily. Everything started looking shaky. The hair no longer looked smooth. It looked like everything was jittery. One of my last things I did on the Avengers was a cover with Count Nefaria, which was a tightly drawn cover. Just one single figure, and for whatever reason, it looked like he was trying to do a Barry Windsor Smith ornate noodle style, but without any of Barry's control. And then he goes on, and he says it was disappointing. And they didn't just work together very well anymore. And so then he uh, tried out Scott Hanna, Scott Koblis, Bob Wyachek, all took page, took turns doing pages. Uh, he goes, maybe I just burned out Alve. So he does a little self-depreciating. Reason I'm taking you down, look at this. Look at how much of that interview is, inter is, is taken to anchors. And George's view on, let's see, Jack Abel, Mike Esposito, Gene Day, Joseph Rubenstein, Alve. Scott Koblish, Scott Hanna, Bob Wyachek, okay? I mean, Vinnie Coletta was, was mentioned a minute ago. George had laser-like focus for how he wanted his work to turn out. And again, he told me personally, you know, he had just wished he could work more with Terry Austin, the premier inker of like 15 years. The guy who inked every single, uh, with the exception of one issue, inked all of John Byrne's exceptional X-Men run. George Perez did an X-Men annual with Terry Austin that is so gorgeous. I have pages from that. I have original pages. The inking is meticulous. And George told me that when he inked his own work, he was trying to go for a more crisp, clean Terry Austin style. He even says later in this interview, he mentions Terry and how Terry always had a crisp, chiseled look. And that's what George craved. How do I know that? So here's a great personal story. After visiting George at so many stores in the early 80s and seeing him at the convention in 81 and being at the comic store in 1980 and then seeing him in 1983 and then working his table in 1984, I had joined, I had joined a Teen Titan fan club. And as part of that Teen Titan fan club, I had gotten to know George on a personal level. He was very intimate with the Teen Titans um, uh, members, so much so that um, some of us were either drawn in or our names were put in the guest book in Titans, New Titans 50, which was the wedding issue. 
between Terry and Donna Troy. And uh, in there is a page that has a guest book and there's my name, Rob Liefeld. Had I been on the job and set my picture, give my po Polaroid to jo George as he had requested, I would have actually been drawn in. But, you know, I was an irresponsible 15-year-old uh, at that time. And I'm just so proud that my name is in there. But George speaks of this, speaks of all of us. And he speaks about me specifically here in the focus on George Perez. Now, he doesn't say my name, but I'm going to tell you right now. After joining uh, Titan Talk, and we, we, which was the Teen Titans fan club, uh, we had um, we had provided our personal info to the um, central mailer, the woman who uh, took 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 care to compile and collate and get all of our different um, uh, uh, issues of each. It's called an app. I've covered this in a recent uh, podcast, Amateur Press Association, which is what maybe you were a part of a Legion app or an Avengers app. Ours was Titans. Our Titans APA Amateur Press Association was Titan Talk. And uh, George had done an original cover that DC didn't use for two years. It was an original cover for our anniversary issue. Uh, I did the cover to Titan Talk issue eight. George did the cover to Titan Talk issue six. They would come out quarterly. Um, George, in this interview with Heidi McDonald and focus on George Perez, uh, says that when they were doing the wedding issue, he says... Uh, I knew, this is page 19 of Focus on George Perez, I knew some of the members of the Titans fan club, intimately in fact. I had shocked many of the fan club members by calling them up. One, one time I had to explain that I really was George Perez. He could not believe it. That is me. Uh, George, who had seen me again at at, at, at least half a dozen different events, uh, high school Robbie Liefeld, bringing his portfolio, bringing his sketchbook, bringing his comic books, George was very familiar. If he was coming to Southern California, he knew he was going to see Rob Liefeld with many other names that were familiar that would follow him. We were kind of George Perez groupies. and uh, But I would always, literally everywhere I went during that period, I was always the youngest fan. I was always, I mean, 13, 14 in, in, in a room of sometimes 19, 20, 30-year-olds. Um, very much... Uh, uh, Older art collectors with money, they always came out. They always bought pages, got sketches. Um, I would see the stuff that came back in the sketchbooks the next day. It was phenomenal. My phone rings. I am having, you know, dinner with my family. And again, we had a rotary phone with a giant, thank God, a giant, you know, twisted cord, one of those coil cords and uh, called. And my mom says, it's for you, Robbie. And that's what she called me. I was, you know, 14 years old. And it said, hello, is this Rob Liefeld? And I was like, yes. He goes, this is George Perez. And I was like, this is a joke. I go, come on, man. I thought some of my friends or some people at the comic book store were, were, were joking on me. I go, there's no way this is George. He goes, I, I got your number from, I got your number from Margie. And Margie was the central mailer of Titan Talk. And I'm like, really? Come on. This isn't George Perez. This is not... And if you've listened to my show, <laughs> when the editor of the X-Men called me years later, I did the same thing. I was like, you're not Bob Harris. You're not really from Marvel. You're not calling me. And he's like, I am George Perez. Rob, I have met you at several different store signings. And I was like, wow. Wow. I go, George, I can't believe. What are you calling? He goes, well, I, I know that you are uh, 
uh, very enthusiastic about bringing into the comics industry. And I wanted to call and see if you wanted me to answer any questions for you specifically. Because I know that your dream is to become a comic book artist. I took that phone and turned the corner and went up the stairs and was able to stretch that phone a good 12 feet away from the dinner table. My parents kind of understood, like they didn't mind if the meatballs on my spaghetti got cold. This was, they knew they had driven me to so many different George Perez signings that this was something special. So when I read here in 1985, because he called me before 85, uh, uh, and this is this is published uh, during Crisis on Infinite is coming out, and, and this is before Crisis that he called me when he says, one time I had to explain that I really was George Perez, he couldn't believe it. So here's the deal. Again, George is talking about putting us in the book. My name is in the guest book in Titans 50. So this is all around that time. Well, the reason I'm telling you this is that this familiarity with George would then become an opportunity to basically kind of chaperone him at his next appearance out in Southern California. My friend, Hank Canals, I have mentioned him often on the show. Hank went on to be an executive at DC Comics for about the better part of 12 years. He had worked at Warner Brothers in their uh, theme park division, uh, got very high up and was running a lot of business for Six Flags, which as you know, Six Flags has theme parks, amusement parks all over, you know, North America. So, but... Hank really wanted to work at DC Comics and pivoted and moved within the company when it was Warner Brothers from parks to publishing. Worked alongside Jim Lee, many others. Hank and I met in our as teenagers at shows. His family moved out to Corona right when Corona, uh, 20 minutes from where I live in Orange County, was start, just starting to build up its community, just starting to get new houses, new developments. And Hank had moved out, and so we had been pen pals and gone to a couple of conventions together and now it was time wow he was coming to my backyard so I would spend tons of time going and visiting and hanging out with Hank driving to Corona um, talking about you know uh, uh, work we were going to do together Hank scripted the first issue of Youngblood so you will know him from that and eventually again he's had a long career in the um, comics and graphic novel business and was very prominent at DC, well, Hank will recount this story word for word. We secured with George that we would pick him up at the hotel at John Wayne Airport for the upcoming convention that he was going to appear at in, uh, like it was November, November of uh, 1986. And, uh, and, and, and George uh, had not yet debuted Wonder Woman, but everyone knew that Wonder Woman was coming. He had been announced. But what we weren't expecting was the George Perez that we had encountered separately together in the in the early 80s was not the George Perez we were about to pick up at John Wayne Airport. We took my car. We pulled up. Hank and I were so excited. We are looking for George coming out of the, you know, coming out of the old John Wayne setup. Always had the beautiful John Wayne statue. Um, and out comes a man in a three-piece kind of, uh, you know, off brown, kind of darker than tan, not 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 too dark brown, but he's in a three-piece suit. And he is wearing like Ray-Ban sunglasses and his hair, his pompadour is uh, slick back and there is no beard. The George Perez that we had always seen was um, a little larger, wore kind of a larger 
extra large kind of shirt that was never tucked in. But this was a very fit and trim. And I I know he had told us, like George had said, and uh, just so you know, I've, I've lost, it was like 60 or 70 pounds. He had told us, I've, I've lost a lot of weight. Um, George had let us know he was going to start doing per, uh, performances. I think Little Abner and some other um, guys and dolls. I don't know how close or if he ever made it to Broadway, but he was um, doing theater, doing doing tons of theater. Well, George comes out. He's got his bag, one one briefcase and his bag, and he walks out and he says, "Rob, Hank, it's George." And we were like, "What?" George Perez was a dapper, three-piece suit wearing, slick back hair, Ray-Ban, uh, Ray-Bans on, just a smooth operator. And he was like, oh, thank you so much for picking me up. Thank you so much for picking me up. Because we knew he was going to stay at the Disneyland Hotel for yet another one of their Disneyland conventions. But they had built a new wing to the Disneyland Hotel between his um, first uh, appearance there that I had seen him at in 1981 to now 1986, whole new wing, whole new um, uh, uh, ballroom and convention center that he was going to be staying in. So we took him and he just started chatting up a storm, how exciting his life has been since crisis, how he went on this diet, how he's lost 60, 70 pounds. I mean, he was, he was physically so different looking. I mean, really just the just, he looked like an actor now. He didn't He didn't look like George Perez, the comic book artist that we had come to know. He was now this dapper guy and he was talking t- about all his productions and dancing and acting and, and, and that's become a huge passion for him. And we, uh, the funny thing, and this is what Hank, we'll, 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 we, we're, we just couldn't get over this. So we pull up, we park, we are walking from the parking lot into checking him in at the front desk to get his room in the hotel and he has his Ray-Bans on from the car to right when we come in, you know, the lobby where he takes his glasses off. And now it's George without the Ray-Bans and he goes up, he says, my name is George Perez. They get him checked into the room. They give him his teeth. He's like, join me, you know, come up to the room. And uh, we go up there with him and uh, then he's still talking to us. And then he, he takes off his coat. He puts on the hanger. He puts his bag. Um, he says, I know that we're going to get some dinner together. So, you know, why don't we uh, uh, meet in, in an hour, hour and a half? Let me get some rest and we'll go and, and, and get some dinner. And I said, fantastic. But the one thing I left out is to get to his room, we had to leave the lobby and then go back outside and walk to another different pavilion, which was going to take him up to his room. And so the Ray-Bans go on the minute he gets back outside. And then we walk into the new pavilion to get the elevators and the sunglasses come off. And Hank and I were so tickled by this kind of new, I want to say, Hollywood George. And um, of course, we left him there to get his rest. And this was about 3, 3.30 in the afternoon. And around 5, 5.30, Hank Canals and I took, and I still think of it every single time, off State College. And I want to say Catella. Yes, the Extreme Studios building was on Catella in the 90s. But for a little further down, there is an El Torito. El Torito. So yes, we took the um, Puerto Rican uh, superstar artist, George Perez, to American, uh, uh, you know, Tex-Mex at El Torito. But George was thrilled. Just Hank and I 
we take him, we get our table, and he regales us with stories of titans and and how he has the highest hopes for the books now that now that uh, you know Marv is going to be working with Jose Luis Garcia Lopez and Ed Barreto, and he doesn't he's not sure about Romeo Town Hall inking Jose something that he repeats in this focus book. He goes in much greater detail. He's like, why not in this interview? He's like, why not give Romeo a chance? You know, we don't know how it'll work out, but he's 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 never inked, you know, Jose before, but, you know, let's give him a chance. Then he launches into very detailed breakdown of why he's doing Wonder Woman. This is to two, let me tell you something. In 1986, I am 18 years old. Um, I am, I am, I am 18. Uh, uh, yeah, late 1985, I turn 18. So before then, I am still 18, hanging out with George Perez. Hank is either 18, 19, and we are dipping our chips and dip and salsa and just listening to George explain to us that he had to take Wonder Woman. He's like, well, with coming off crisis, you know, towards the end of crisis, he says, John Byrne decided to make his move to DC and they got him his giant, you know, Superman deal. And then Frank Miller, you know, is taking over uh, uh, Batman and, and, and I think Dark Knight number one had just come out. Or maybe it was on the second issue, but but uh, he's like, you know, Frank and John are doing two of DC's most beloved icons. And then he told us, and I don't think he cares because he I, I, I heard him tell other people this at other times. He says, I have most favored nation. And I had never heard this term before. What is most favored nation? It sounds like the United Nations to me. What is most favored nation? I can go right back into 18-year-old Rob Liefeld's body and go, what is he talking about? Most favored nation. He's like, most favored nation is I make $1 more than the best paid person at DC Comics, so no one can get paid more than me. They owe that to me for what I did with Titans in Crisis. And they gave that to me as part of my contract. So no matter what they pay John Byrne, no matter what they pay Frank Miller, I make $1 more because I have most favored nation. And I was like, hot damn. George Perez is every bit the shrewd businessman as he is the master of drawing rubble, down shots, up shots, crowd scenes, all of it. And he was very frank with Hank and I how he had positioned himself at the top of the food chain. Because I'm going to tell you, it was about nine months into him being at DC in 1980 as 80 turned to 81 and Titans took off. George was the most important guy at DC Comics for five years. There's a point in this uh, in this focus on George Perez interview where he says that he he that that Marv told him, George, we have four books in the top ten: two Titans books, Crisis, and uh, maybe History of the DC Universe. And George is like, we did it. We came to DC with the promise of turning them around, and they did. And so George was. Uh, had every opportunity, had every um, expectation that he would be rewarded. And he was, and he should be. We thrilled to it. You guys, Crisis on Infinite Earths, every issue um, was just event after event. I mean, they killed Supergirl, you know, uh, issue six, seven. And you thought that was the big thing. That's what they were building up to. Boom. And then 
Barry Allen The Flash dies in an even more heroic, amazing manner the following issue, seven or eight. And uh, that was like, whoa, only they would do that in the style that they did that in, with as, as bold as they as, as they did it. And I, I said, I've said this, Crisis on Infinite Earths was, was a, a story of unimaginable scale and scope, but it never got away from you because George made it all manageable, digestible. He made it warm. He made it comfortable. He, 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 through his master class of storytelling, page design, gesture, he just always kept the story intimate, even though the scale was insane. And you got that sense, but it never completely overwhelmed. You as the reader were never overwhelmed with all of the different things going on and all of the different crises happening across multiple timelines, multiple earths as they were all falling to the anti-monitor because George, as good as Marv is, it really fell on the artist to pull this off. And the reason it is the single best crossover event ever is because of George, his storytelling, his keen eye for page design, layouts, um, knowing when to pull in, when to pull back, uh, just just masterclass. So George deserved every single accolade that DC would give him. Of course he deserved most favored nation because again, he built that bridge. Without George Perez, I seriously doubt as a fan from where I was sitting that DC was an option to Frank Miller. Even though Frank started at DC with a short Batman story and maybe some weird war tales like Mark Silvestri did, he, he came to full power on Daredevil and Elektra and the hand and stick and and then his collaboration with David Mazzuccelli in Born Again. But but I think word got around. We treat our people well. We've we make these guys stand out. And and John burned the same thing. John had really, for lack of a better term, burned through every title at Marvel. Hulk, X-Men, Avengers, Fantastic Four, Captain America, Spider-Man comics, Marvel Team Up, Champions, Iron Fist. I mean it, it got to the point where you know his epic run on Fantastic Four was 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 one for the ages. Alpha Flight, a brand new team that he had launched and then left, and he was looking for a new direction, new inspiration. And I think he looked over and he said, "George Perez hasn't been back to Marvel since he left in 1980. In 1986, George is still completely devoted to DC, its personnel, everybody, because they took care of him, and they should have taken care of him." And he provided us so much entertainment and joy. And so he tells us he has to do Wonder Woman because he, his own words, he said, I cannot get left behind. I cannot be left behind. I have to uh, do Wonder Woman so that we're, I'm, I'm part of the big three iconography. Frank has Batman. John has Superman. I have Wonder Woman. And he said about telling us all of his plans that he had for Wonder Woman and how he's going to go deep, deep, deep into the mythology. And uh, it really felt like he was going to take the same turn, even more so with Wonder Woman that, that that Walt Simonson had just been doing for the last three years on Thor. Really go hard at that mythology. Really, you know, lean into um, um, the Asgard of it all. That's what he did with Paradise Island and the Greek mythology and the gods. And, uh, and so George had the cover to number one done. He didn't give me the original, but he gave me an 11 by 17, uh, you know, horizontal shot, you know, reproduction 
of the wraparound cover. And as we ended dinner, he said, Rob, would you be able to make me copies of this so I can give, off, give out at my table tomorrow? Well, this was a, uh, this was now, you know, late on Friday evening. And this is a world that did not have Kinko's. It had copy places, Xerox stores, but they had weird hours and they were not, no one was open 24 hours. That, that, that doesn't even happen until the late nineties. There was no Kinko's, Kinko's in Orange County. It was like, I knew all the mom and pop copy places, but a lot of them had weird hours and I'm certainly not going to get it done on a Friday and I'm certainly not going to get it done before, you know, the, the, the doors open on, on, for, for the show on Saturday at, at the creation convention that George is attending. So what I do is I go to my friends who work at the church and I ask to see if I can use the church copier. And I did this at 9 a.m. because I knew they're prepping for Sunday and I went to the church, not uh, the new church that I was attending. And, uh, and, 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 I, and I talked to the youth pastor because I was volunteering with the teenage kids uh, and being, I was kind of a counselor and a guidance guy for a, for the few years following graduating high school, until my deadlines got so much that I couldn't do it anymore. True story. And uh, and 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 so I went and I talked to Johnny, who is the youth pastor. I said, "Could I get into the main church, the main offices, and use the copy machine? Because I knew they had a really nice copy machine." He goes, oh, "Sure, Rob." Gave me the key. I went. I rattled off a hundred copies. And I said, Johnny, I owe you for a hundred pages. I owe you, I owe you for a hundred, you know, pieces of paper. And he's like, Yeah, you're gonna have to take care of that with me. I said, I'll do it, you know, next week. And I did. But now I had a hundred copies, black and white line art of George's immaculate uh, wraparound cover to Wonder Woman number one. And I drive back, and I am so pleased to deliver them. And he's like, Oh, thank you. And it's like, so I was George Perez's errand boy, and if you. Don't believe that at the end of Sunday, at the end of Sunday's convention, uh, Hank and I then drove George to the airport and bid him a goodbye. He gave us big hugs. And uh, at that point, George would kind of stop coming out as regularly as he did. And literally, as that fall turned into winter and winter into spring, in April of 87, I got hired. And I got hired, uh, as you guys have told you on this podcast, simultaneously Marvel and DC gave me jobs. Um, I got short stories from DC Comics immediately, and I got Marvel Universe handbook stuff from Marvel Comics. But along the way, while I was starting to do Hawk and Dove for DC Comics, they said, hey, why don't you, uh, they knew my love for the Titans, and I was asking if I could do a cover. And George Perez had told me, if you ever break it in and you want me to ink you, I'd be happy to ink a cover over you. So I got a Tales of the Titans cover with Brother Blood and Raven and Nightwing. And I got very specific instructions on how to depict this cover. Um, and, and, you know, my favorite Titan was Cyborg. So I drew him in the Indicia box. I called up George Perez and I said, George, would you ink this? He said, Rob, I told you I'd ink it. It's no problem. Um, let the editor know that you've talked to me, that I've committed to it, and so that he makes sure that the pencils get sent to me. Because at that point, everything went straight to the office, and then the office would disperse. And sure enough, George Perez just kicked all sorts of ass on that Brother Blood Tales of the Titans cover. I know I, I, I owe you guys uh, the number of that issue, but it's a Tales of the Titan, Brother Blood in the center. I tried to sign my 
my name like George did. He had a grid that he had been using in the mid 80s. And I tried to, I did a grid for Liefeld. I tried to make it work and he gridded right next to me. It's next to the Indicia box with Cyborg's face. And it says Liefeld and Perez. And I couldn't believe just the thrill of my life that that my comic book idol, who had, who had, I think his love of Southern California and Orange County had led him to appear out among us so often that he was inking a cup for mine. And sure enough, there it was. It saw print to this day. I have multiple copies of that. If you don't think yesterday, based on the news that we got, that I went out and grabbed that again and just stared at it. And I was able to get the pencils and just compare them. And it was such an honor. George is one of those guys that makes you really um, want to meet your heroes. The other people at different store signings and at different conventions along the way during those early years that I met George were not as friendly and kind. Whether they were shy or they were just naturally grumpy, a lot of grumpies, especially those San Diego Comic Cons. You meet a lot of your idols that whose names are in these comics and they're quick to dismiss you, brush you off. But I can tell you the jolliest man I ever met the kindest, jolliest was Dave Cockrum. Dave passed away many, I mean, over a decade ago. George Perez was right there. Not as jolly, but boisterous, fun, wanted to talk shop with you, was unafraid. And the last thing that I'll share with you guys that I think is, is just so, um, at that 1984, when I handled his art and he did the Jericho sketch for me and said I should go home and ink it, he was pretty hot out of the collar because the Justice League Avengers, the original Justice League Avengers, had fallen apart. And he was really mad, and he blamed it on Jim Shooter, and I'm not sure what happened along the way, but George was very upset um, that that story did not go down. For about 10 years, I owned those pages, 1 through 20, of the Justice League Avengers that George did. I bought them in the early 90s when I had kind of... Uh, you know, come into the big success that I had experienced in Star Image Comics, and there was an opportunity, and I bought them, and George, I bought them directly from George, and uh, and and I had them until 2000. I had them eight and a half years, and uh, the reason I sold them was because then they were going to do the Justice League Avengers finally and make it four issues, and it was going to be 200 pages worth of material, and that made the 20 pages unpublished that I had just in my mind not special anymore, and it would be like I've always said if there was secret footage to Star Wars that George had hidden from 20 years and then one day he put it in all the prints of star wars you're like well this secret footage that i had this this strip of this this scene that that never was edited in well it's not special anymore now everyone's gonna see it what was special about those pages to me was the kind of the forbidden fruit aspect but i'm, I'm getting off the track here the bottom line is at that moment in 1984 george says what really sucks is it because of July, the Justice League Avengers going the way it did and getting canceled and being taken off the, the, the table? Marv and I can't do the follow-up to X-Men Titans because the deal was that Chris Claremont and Walt Simonson were going to do Titan uh, X-Men Titans, which was published, which is phenomenal. Walt Simonson and Terry Austin stepped up, did an amazing job blending the teams. Great. Chris Claremont uh, carried the heavy, heavy, uh, did the heavy lifting. And it was great, but I've heard, I've seen friends of mine who are like, it should have been John Byrne, Terry Austin. They're they're, they're the team that we associate with that success, or or Paul Smith, who was doing the book at the time. But Walt Simonson did a bang up job. Deathstroke, Dark Side, Phoenix. It's just an amazing 
Beautiful comic. Of course, George and Marv were going next after Justice League Avengers. It was Titans X-Men. So there was going to be X-Men Titans, then Justice League Avengers, then Titans X-Men. And George said the story was the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, which 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 um, Marv and George had updated with all new characters. They were originally a, a Doom Patrol offshoot, but following the Doom Patrol in uh, in Titans 13 and 14 and 15, George and Marv went all in on building out a really nasty version of the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. I mean, I'm sorry, the Brotherhood of Evil, excuse me, the Brotherhood of Evil. The X-Men had the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, but the Brotherhood of Evil was going to combine with the Hellfire Club. And he, George told me that Dick Grayson and Starfire, they all infiltrate the Hellfire Club without knowing at first that Sebastian Shaw and all of those um, uh, on the Hellfire Club uh, uh, were, 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 were going to be, you know, uh, uh, were who they were. It was just a posh, you know, high society uh, secret club that they were infiltrating. And he said it was going to be the Brotherhood of Evil combined with the Hellfire Club who were going to knock, um, knock buttheads with the X-Men and Titans forces this time around. And he said Dick Grayson and Coriander uh, were going to go attend one of the galas and then, of course, discover what was going on behind the scenes. And, of course, you know, Raven and Kid Flash and 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 Jericho uh, and, and Cyborg were all ready to spring into action. Um, and, and react once Shaw and, and Leland and the rest of the Hellfire Club made their move. The hair stood on uh, the back of my neck, on my arms. As, I, as George was telling me this, I was dying inside, knowing that I was not going to see George's beautiful rendition of the X-Men and the Titans and what would have been a really nasty pairing of villains and again look at all those characters look at all the that, that that look at all those team dynamics that George was looking forward to so the Justice League Avengers really cost us as fans in the in the heat in the peak of the bronze age what would I believe would have been the finest of all the crossovers because you know George was going to step up and deliver and uh, George had already proven that he drew just an amazing rendition of the X-Men his Colossus his Wolverine his Storm his Cyclops they were fantastic and then to have uh, George Perez renditions of the X-Men standing alongside George's most famous creations uh, in, in all of those new Titans characters. Alongside the Brotherhood of Evil, alongside the Hellfire Club, would have just been astounding. Just absolutely astounding. I loved it to this day when I, when I, when I talk about it, I can close my eyes and I can imagine what those panels looked like. George Perez became the most popular guy in comics and the top guy at DC because he drew really pretty people, handsome people in, in, in wonderfully staged uh, sequences of both action and drama. Um, he really, uh, uh, you know, again, he told us at that El Trio that night that, that so much of the performing that he was now doing in these stage plays of Guys and Dolls and Little Abner was helping him portray better emotions and acting uh, in, in all the work that he was doing, George really became the, 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 there's a period where 
You know, everybody wears that crown, and he had that Kirby crown. He was best in show. He was the best the comic business had to offer for quite an extended period of time. And uh, I just can't thank him enough for all the joy and all of the inspiration that he's bring, brought to me as a fan and as a peer across my my enjoyment of comics my entire life. I've talked to here. I consume, I consume, I consume. I consume George Perez and... Uh, and, and, and there was just no looking back. He, whether it was the Avengers, the Fantastic Four, his depiction of the Squadron Supreme, the Titans, the Inhumans, his adaptation of Logan's run, he never failed to absolutely captivate me with every, uh, every line, every depiction. And uh, I just cannot thank him enough. And this podcast is a, is, is, is a, is a testament to him and, and all that he brought forth uh, and, and all that he he uh, he has done in the business to inspire so many of us. And we are going to enjoy the time he has with us still as he courageously goes through this. At the end of this interview with Heidi McDonald, she says, Hey, George, can I ask you, whose work are you enjoying now? This is 1985. George says, Oh, God, there are just so many. There are some people who inspire me to better work. Jose Garcia Lopez is one of them. Brian Bolin, another. I still get a great kick out of watching John's John Burns' work. I'm so glad he stopped inking himself so he can concentrate on his work a little more. That's an elbow. That's a jab right there. That's him saying, I'm so glad you stopped inking yourself so that you could get a little better because you were slacking. He says, again, his exact words are, I'm so glad he stopped inking himself so he can concentrate on his work and a little more. Who else, he says to himself, Howie Chaikin. I mean, his style and mine are totally alien. I just love the vitality in his work and the fact that he's so great on American Flag. Bill Sienkiewicz. It's just so gut feeling. Again, totally alien to my style. People, I would go out of my way to pick up their work, the ones that I've mentioned. I'm sure I'm figuring someone. Gil Kane. Gil Kane still excites me. I'm not fond of him making himself, but I'm really fond of his dynamics. Almost everyone in the business I look at with some enthusiasm. And then this is the shocker. There are a few people I hate. There are some. I'm not going to mention them. That would be really obnoxious. There are there are a few people I hate. Awesome. I would have loved for him to spill the beans. You know, in all honesty, George was just friendly all the time. He was always so generous, so kind. And that uh, that trip at the Anaheim Convention Center, picking him up at the local Orange County Airport, John Wayne here in, in Orange County in Santa Ana, taking him to the Disneyland Hotel, checking in with him, taking him to dinner, grabbing copies for him. That is a highlight. I know Hank feels the same. And uh, and there were more encounters to go, and George is still with us. And I hope that he knows how much we love him. And, and we are going to continue to celebrate him as often as we can. And this today, this this is just part, the first part of, of what is going to be a whole bunch of of tributes for Mr. George Perez going forward. I raise my glass to you, sir. You are an It has been an honor to know you, to continue to know you, to be inspired by you as you inspire all of us now with how you are looking down this uh, diagnosis with your um, less than stellar health situation and saying, I am going to go out on my terms and uh, live life the way I want to live. Uh, for this extended period of time with my friends and my family. And George, you're going to hear it from a lot of people. 
you're going to hear it from you're, the outpouring of love is going to be so amazing. And uh, I know so many listeners of Rob Observations join me in expressing to you how much we love you and thank you. And we're going to continue to talk you up and talk your work up and promote your work and and turn people who 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 haven't seen your work onto you um, again and again and again because you're that good. You're one of the all time greats. Your storytelling, your beautiful people that you draw, um, the great staging, the gestures, the page design. You're one in a million. And uh, I look forward to uh, continuing to celebrate you, sir. This is just the beginning. So to George, I just say I love you. We love you. And uh, and we're going to be there with you, walking alongside of you every step of the way. So there you go. Um, one of many tributes to George Perez that are going to come in these next months. Um, I just, I can, I could talk about him endlessly and, and we definitely went long today, but, uh, but this time, this episode is, is, is I'm back to reading your reviews. Um, the, the reviews that you guys send and put, um, put, put out there and the ratings and the five stars and the recommendations, the word of mouth, it, it is crucial to our show. I love it. I thank you so much for um for for recommending this show and doing so with so much enthusiasm, a couple of you guys at LA Comic Con this last week, you brought your show you, your books up to me, and as you were walking away, you said it's a macho show. And if you listen to that, and if you know this show, you know that I'm talking about Richard Anderson from the Six Million Dollar Man. He played Oscar Goldman, and 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 he talked about the the Six Million Dollar Man. I, I, and I have compared the comics that me and my peers produced to the kind of uh, to. to to, to this aspect that, that, that Richard Anderson says about the six million dollar man. And on the documentary on the box set, he says, we were a macho show, a macho show. I mean, Lee, Lee was macho. Speaking of Lee majors. So I've, I've invoked that for the last two years and you guys, you, you, you give me that wink, that nod and I'm done signing. And you say, it's a macho show. It's a macho show life. And I just, I appreciate so much. Well, today we, um, I read your reviews at the end of every show. And today, very quick one, dropped by Elefesco. Elefesco. Um, and, and I appreciate so much. He says, Muchas gracias, mi amigo señor. Five stars. Your passion is infectious and knowledge of comics unparalleled. Thank you for defining a generation and all the effort in educating and entertaining us on the world of comics, superheroes, and pop culture. You are a national treasure. Thank you, Elefesco. I appreciate you so much. Just the quick notes. They are, they are so great. Um, they really build our credibility. And and uh, and you guys have been so amazing and terrific in your enthusiasm. You guys know that you can reach me um, all, on, on social media. On, uh, on, on Twitter, I'm at Robert Liefeld. With a blue check, that's really me. Okay? On Instagram, I am at Rob Liefeld. Shorter rendition. Still a boot check. Still really me. I'm all over Facebook. I'm in a million different groups. I'm all over the platform. This show has a Facebook page. Seek it out. Interact with us there. You guys, I love talking to you guys. I love sharing ideas, concepts. Just all of the discussions that we have are so rich. Again, you leave a positive review for our show. When you log it, I will read it on the air at the end of this 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 end time of every show. So thank you so much again for recommending the show, for digging the show um, for, 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 for supporting us in the way that you have. This is the time of the show when you tell me, you commit to me that you're going to take care of yourself. And I take it your word because you got to, you got to take care of yourself, take care of yourself, your mental health, your physical health, your emotional health. It's so important. 
These have been a crazy couple of years. Take a deep breath. Appreciate the people who love you around you. And, uh, and, and if you need help, get it. And if you can give help, give it. All right. And, uh, I just appreciate you guys so much. So you are going to stay safe and we are going to talk again real soon. (laughs) 